Hey, I do appreciate the opportunity to be here today. I've already had some people ask me about, you know, who is Creation Ministries International, so let me ask, answer that. We literally are international. We have offices in seven countries on five continents. Uh, we speak in over 1,000 churches worldwide every year. We were founded almost 45 years ago, and we employ more PhD scientists than any ministry in the world. But we're not just about science. And let me see if I can explain that to you. How many of you, when you've been out sharing your faith, have had people ask you and challenge you with questions like this? I mean, did God really create in just six days? I mean, after all, science has proven that evolution in millions of years are fact. And what about the dinosaurs? How did all the animals fit on the ark? Where did all the races come from? And why does a loving God allow death and suffering now, do me a favor. If you've had people challenge you with questions about the Bible like that, would you put your hand in the air, leave it up there, look around the room? So the reason that we hire these scientists is to give you answers to those questions that are scientifically accurate as well as historically and biblically accurate and easy to understand, answers that you can use. And you can find the answers to those questions on our website. Our website is kind of hard to remember, so we're going to do a little science this morning, if that's okay. Um, I don't know if you know, but scientists have proven that if you say something out loud, audibly, with your mouth, you're more apt to have it imprinted into your brain. Did you guys know that? It's science, okay? So, would you guys all join me in saying this together, please? Creation.com. Now, can you remember that? <laughs> If you were to go there this afternoon, you'd find over 15,000 articles written by our scientists and professionals over 40 plus years, answering those and many more questions. You know, for example, you guys know this guy. We got some tragic news a number of years ago. What happened? Stingray killed him, stung him in the heart. And people wrote into our ministry, challenged us and said, oh yeah, well, why would a loving God create stingrays that can kill? Ah, gotcha. So, we... Our scientists were writing this article, and in only 10 days, it became our most visited article ever because believers like you that subscribed to our email, email newsletter received it and was passing and forwarding it on to their family and friends, showing them that there are scientific answers to what many do as challenges toward the Bible. And am I right that in the news we hear all the time about perhaps a dinosaur discovery that proves evolution or maybe that missing link between ape-like creatures and man they claim to, uh, to discover? Well, chances are we're going to be writing an article that you can use to share with your family and friends. So if you guys want to be part of our ministry, I'd like to invite everyone here to sign up for our free email newsletter. Only comes out about once a week, not gonna spam you. But if you can just put down your name and a, and a zip code and your email address, we'll do that. So if you could distribute those now, if you guys could do me a favor and just pass those uh, back as you go and get everybody has a chance to be able to equip their family with the latest information. But how many people here know that kids hear about evolution 24 seven? I mean, no matter where you look. And, and, and if that's the case, where are they going to hear a biblical side? Is it going to be when they go to public school? Nope. How about when they turn on TV? Nope. Certainly by the time they get to be in university? Nope. So please understand the heart of our ministry is to equip you with this information that you can use in your families as well as outside of your home. And you can find those answers again. Where are everybody? Thank you. All right. So let's go ahead and get started with the presentation. Now, you folks in Idaho can probably tell because of my funny accent 
that I come from a foreign land. <laughs> Correct. It's called California. <laughs> but I'm actually not a native of California, so I hope you don't hold that against me. But I did, when I did immigrate into that state, I had to adapt to my environment, because as you may know, scientists like to see organisms adapt to their environment. And to prove to you that I did so, here's me catching a wicked 12-inch wave. <laughs> And luckily, my graphic artist that works for me uh, made me look a little bit more macho than I actually am. But speaking of macho, I would like to introduce you to my friend Sammy. Now, Sammy is what you call real man. Do we have any of those here today? <laughs> Apparently not. Okay. In any case, uh, Sammy is a native Californian. It fits the stereotype. He loves to surf. Uh, but also, he was a California professional, California Beach lifeguard. And at the time of this event, he was actually working at Pismo Beach. And it, it was a, his day off, so he took his quad out. He was riding up and down the sand dunes, enjoying the beautiful weather at the time. But the weather started to turn bad as the day wore on and a storm came in. And as the sun hit the Pacific Ocean, that storm was creating waves with eight-foot faces. So as he's riding along the beach, he came to this exact spot and there were 12 people yelling and waving their arms to get his attention. So he drove up there and turned off his motor and he found out why they were excited. Because see, there was a surfboard there at their feet. However, the surfer was 100 yards off in the darkness, being picked up by these waves, thrown into the rocks, and he was severely lacerated from head to toe, screaming for help. Sam went ahead, Sammy went ahead and took off his helmet and his boots, and those things would weigh him down and found a rip current, made it out to that man, struggled, but brought him to shore, and with medical uh, attention, his life was spared. But let me ask you a question. Why did he do it while those 12 people just stood there and watched? Huh? He knew how. He knew how. You see, he was equipped, he was trained, he knew how to navigate those waves. And you know, I think our culture is kind of like that surf. You know, those waves are kind of like the questions that challenge a straightforward reading of the Bible. Questions like, you know, is there a God? Does he love me? And how about this one? Is the Bible true? And am I right that in our culture that question has been answered with a resounding no? Because most people are taught that science has proven that evolution in millions of years are a fact. And if that is true, then the Bible's account of origins cannot be. I believe it's like a tsunami that are pulling people away from that, the Word of God, that solid rock that we're called to stand on. But I'd like to start with a question, a challenge for all of us this morning, and that is, are you willing to equip and train yourself with the answers to the tough questions that are being, they're being uh, aimed at the Bible in our culture so that you can be the one that dives in and rescues the perishing while perhaps others stand by and watch. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, does this sound like a suggestion or a command? It's a command for every believer. And by the way, this word answer comes from a Greek word, apologian, which was a legal term. It was used in the courts of law to describe how an attorney would perhaps prosecute the accused or maybe defend their client. Now, it was a reasoned, rational, logical defense for a position. 
Does this sound like you? Are you prepared with a defense in the very area where the Bible is being attacked more than any other place in the creation and evolution debate? All right, now, indeed, we do talk about science quite a bit. And you're thinking, well, we're in church. We talk about the Bible. But did you know that there are actually scientific statements in the Bible? For example, in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, there's a phrase that's repeated ten times. It says that God created plants and animals to reproduce after their what? Kind. That basically means dogs give birth to dogs, pigs give birth to pigs, and corn kernels bring us corn plants. And does that happen here in Idaho too? Yes. But when you think about it, the DNA that's in those original created kinds is passed on to future generations. And although those creatures do have the ability to adapt to their environment, which we shall be thankful for. Nonetheless, the Bible is very clear that God created plants and animals to reproduce after their kind. However, most people hear a very different story than that, don't they? Most people hear that over millions and millions and millions of years, through the process of natural selection and random <coughs> mutations, that as creatures pass on their genetic information to future generations, they can actually change from one kind of animal into a completely different kind of animal over millions of years. You guys have heard that idea, right? But you see, both of these things can't be true at the same time. If our kids are in, in uh, science class, let's say in school, the teacher might say, well, now if you guys believe in Bible stories, if you go to church, and if those Bible stories give you hope and purpose and meaning in your life, I won't hold that against you. You can believe those Bible stories, but this is science class. Here we talk about facts. Now, do you see the decision that has to be made? And it's not just our kids or our grandkids, am I right? I mean, do any of you have people in your family that think you're just a little nuts for believing the Bible's account of how God created when science, they say, proves that evolution in millions of years are a fact. That's why we need to have a defense for our faith. And if we don't, you know, what's going to happen? Perhaps you've heard the Barnett Institute statistics that say that two-thirds of children raised in Christian homes, by the time they get to be the age of 18, leave the faith. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And of course, we're talking about somebody else's kids, not ours, right? And to be fair, other organizations, they took their own surveys and found completely different percentages of those that left the faith. But can I ask you a question? Which percentage would be acceptable to you and your family? Yeah, we went on to college campuses here in the United States and made an, uh, a brief documentary where we, we first we found students that had regularly attended church in the past. We asked them and for those students, we had follow up questions. First one was, do you believe in creation or evolution? Not surprising to us, the majority said evolution. Then we asked a follow-up question. We said, were you given any uh, scientific evidence that supports the historical account of the Bible? And for the dozens of students that said they believed in evolution, they, with the exception of one young man, they said, no, never heard anything like that. And all of them no longer attended church. But of the five, and only five students, they said that they believed the biblical account of creation. We asked them, 
And they said, absolutely, they have been given scientific evidence that supports the historical account of the Bible, and they all continued to attend church. So I hope you can see why we need to have a defense in this particular area. I mean, Jesus himself, he said, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Then why, then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And that's why CMI does employ scientists, not to give you some really deep science, but easy to understand things that you can use in your lives. It will not only build your own faith up, but help your family, and perhaps those people in your neighborhoods and, and uh, workplaces, uh, maybe schools that you attend, that God has put into your life to share the truth, as opposed to what most people hear, that evolution is scientific fact. Now, when it does come to science, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I mean, normally when people think of science, the first thing they think of is what we call operational or, um, or experimental science. Now, that is the kind of science that's done in the present. But perhaps uh, you, you might have used the scientific method maybe when you were in junior high school. You guys remember that? You develop a hypothesis, you perform an experiment, you make observations, you record data, and you can repeat. Do you remember that? You know, uh, it was done in the present. You know, for example, let's say someone here did not believe in the law of gravity, okay? We could actually do an experiment, we could repeat it, we could record data, and we could establish whether that law is true. Operational, and his, uh, operational science is what's done in the present, right before our eyes, and gives us discoveries such as uh, ability to travel in space or medical advances that benefit us all. However, when we're talking about evolution, or for that matter, anything that happened in the past, did you know it's not this type of science? See, what you're talking about there is historic, or what many call forensic science. Now let's say, similarly, someone here believed that a fish, over millions and millions of years of passing on its genetic information to future generations through the process of natural selection and random mutations, that one of its offspring would somehow get uh, information in its genome so that it would sprout new novel structures that would allow it to walk onto land. And now, if you believe that account to be true, can you do an experiment to show that's the case? Can you observe it happening? Is it repeatable? Do you see the difference here? Now, this is a fossil. Can anybody tell me, does this fossil exist in the past or the present? Okay, I heard different answers. Let me see if I can clarify the question a little bit here. Does this fossil, this one right here, the one I'm holding in my hand right here, okay, does this fossil exist in the past or the present? Present. You see, all the evidence we have exists in the present. When we dig up a fossil, tell me, does it come with a label on it that tells us how long ago it lived or what it ate or anything about it? Now, what we have to do is we have to take the evidence that's with us in the present and paint a picture of what happened in the past because it doesn't speak for itself, the facts. It must be interpreted. Now, here's another question. Um, with a show of hands, we'll, we'll kind of vote. And that is, who has the most evidence, evolution or creation? How many people say evolution has the most evidence? Okay, how many people say creation has the most evidence? 
All right. Can, can I uh, do a follow-up question for you? Um, when paleontologists are looking at the fossil record that's available to us in the present, in the various museums around the world and paleontological digs, okay, do the creation scientists and the evolutionary scientists, do they have the same or different evidence to observe in the present? Same. Correct. And how about an astronomer maybe looking at a distant galaxy through his telescope and some of the, the light and waves are coming into his spectrometer? Do the creation scientists and the evolutionary scientists, do they have the same or different evidence to observe in the present? Same. So let me ask you the question again. Who has the most evidence, evolution or creation? Okay, some of you guys are getting it, but I got deer in the headlights look, so I'm going to go ahead. Let's go ahead and take our own little experiment. Take a look at this fact, make your observations, record your data. Here's the hypothesis I would like you to consider. What was this originally? I'm going to make it easier. I'm going to make it multiple choice. How many people think it was A? How about B? C? Oh, we have a couple, a couple optimists in the crowd. Okay, how many, people, how many people think it's D? All right, you want to know the answer? Now, why did you look for something missing? Think about it before you answer. Why? Because I asked. See, what I did is I gave you what's called, we call it in science, a presupposition. That's a long word that means an assumption to use when looking at the evidence. So congratulations. Your conclusion was completely consistent with your presupposition, which I had given you. So some of you are thinking that I tricked you, and that was actually my point. Because I, wanted, I want you to know one thing. In fact, if there's anything you're going to remember this morning, this is it. And that is that when you're watching a program on creation and evolution and you're being given information, I want you to know this. You are, especially students, listen, you're not being given facts. You're being given an interpretation of facts that's based on a presupposition that in the case of evolution has some scientific <coughs> problems. And I think we need to be like the Bereans. Do you guys... Remember them in the Bible? They wanted to know what the real truth was, and we should do no less. Historic science is like that television show, CSI. Now, I don't know if Pastor Corey allows you to watch such programs. I only <laughs> do so for research purposes myself. But if you were to watch that program, you would know that there are scientists that are digging up facts and evidence about a crime that happened in the past. And all these facts and evidence are brought into the courtroom and presented to the jury through two attorneys. Yet one attorney is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've seen all the facts and evidence right before your eyes, right here in the presence, and obviously you can see my client is innocent. Yet the other attorney is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't know what facts and evidence he's talking about. Obviously he's guilty. I mean, you guys could see that clearly. This one's going to say, no, 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 he's misinterpreting the facts. And this one's going, no, he's misinterpreting. But you know what? It's the same facts. Same evidence, two completely different and opposing interpretations, and it's up to the jury to decide which one makes the most sense. But folks, in this case, in the creation and evolution issue, most people in our culture who didn't come to church this morning, I would say, maybe even the people that live in your neighborhoods, most of them only hear one side of the story, am I right? And if that's the case, right here in Rathdrum, who's going to tell them the other side? 
All right, we're going to take a look at a little bit of evidence that makes sense of the historical account of the Bible. And I'm going to start out with an icon of evolutionary timeline of millions of years, namely the Grand Canyon, which gives me an excellent opportunity to flip in a uh, family vacation shot. But if you were to go to the Grand Canyon, you would, of course, be told that it took millions of years for those layers to be laid down and millions of years for the, that river to carve through that, that rock and make that huge canyon. And indeed, when we look at the process of, of sedimentation, that's the laying down of those layers, what we observe in the present is that it takes a really long time to put those layers down. So, if what we observe in the present is what's always happened in the past, then I would grant you it had to have taken millions of years. However, did you know that the evidence is overwhelming that these massive layers were laid down by water? And where do we find massive layers like this? I mean, the Grand Canyon, to be sure. But did you know that no matter where you go in the world and you start digging through sediment, you're going to find massive layers stacked up? And guess what we find inside those layers? Fossils. Fossils. So, can you think of any historical event recorded in the Bible that might explain massive sedimentary layers laid down by water covering the entire globe that include evidence of dead things? Does anything come to mind? <laughs> I had a man come up here and challenge me. He, go, he goes, hey, look, you guys claim to be scientists and you believe this will flood. But you know what? The Bible says that the highest mountains in the world were covered by water and there's not enough water to do that. Ha, gotcha. So how do you answer a question like that? I get excited. You know, I could show them this, for example. You may remember from junior high school that 70% of this planet is covered by extremely, incredibly, very, very deep oceans. In fact, did you know that if you could take the mountains and the continents, push them down, and raise the ocean basins up and kind of reform our planet like it was a perfect sphere, like a basketball, did you know that there would be almost two miles of water covering this planet with just the water that's in the ocean basins today? Now, does that sound like enough water for a cataclysmic worldwide flood like the Bible tells us about? And you know what? It's even more exciting than that. Because you see, in the sedimentary layers at the highest mountains in the world, for example, Mount Everest, we find fossilized marine invertebrates. That's clams and crabs indicating that these layers, now at the top of the highest mountains in the world, were one time underneath the oceans, just like God's word has been telling us all along. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see the evidence? It supports the historical account of the Bible, as opposed to the evolutionary timeline of millions of years. Now, speaking of those layers taking millions of years, here's 28 feet of thousands of fine layers of rock. Now, you would think maybe not millions, but at least thousands of years to do this. But in actuality, these layers were laid down in only three hours. It was on June 12th, 1980 right after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which made a little impact on me since I was 63 miles from the volcano when it erupted. It's just a little bit of the ash that was three feet thick in my parents' front yard. Also an excellent opportunity to slip in yet another family vacation shot. <laughs> but if you were to go to, the, to uh, Mount St. Helens today, you would encounter this canyon, 
This canyon is very large. It's 1 40th the scale of the Grand Canyon. And if you weren't there to know how it formed, you would logically assume that it took a really long time for that little bitty river to carve through those layers of rock and make that massive canyon. But you would be wrong. Because this canyon was formed in only one day, and that was on March 19th, 1982, after a flow came through here at highway speed, <clears throat> excuse me, cutting through the then soft layers, which only decades later have now been turned to stone. They're now rock. Does that look like anything else you've seen before? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see the evidence supports the historical account of the Bible as opposed to the millions of years of evolutionary time? Now, that same man that challenged me about the water, he said, now wait, you guys are always talking about fossils. And you say you believe the Bible, you say you're scientists, but everybody knows it takes millions of years to form a fossil. Ha, gotcha. So, how do you answer a question like that? Well, I get excited. We can talk about where fossils come from. Now, if you were to go to a museum or open a textbook, you would likely find an explanation somewhat like this, where Mr. Dinosaur dies, sinks to the bottom of the ocean, is slowly buried over millions of years, and then through the process of permineralization, millions of years later, his bones would be turned to stone until uh, an erosional event or a paleontologist digs up his bones. Now, I will admit at one time that made sense to me, but is this what we observe in the real world? You see, a number of years ago, I took my daughter to Walmart and I bought her two goldfish. It was a Thursday, and she named them Romeo and Juliet. We brought them home, and two days later, it was 5 a.m. on Saturday morning, she is yelling from her room, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, hurry, Daddy, come here, Dad, look. And I want to let you know, at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I'm a very gentle father. <laughs> so I came into her room, and, and she said, Look, Daddy, Romeo is kissing Juliet. And being more of an objective observer, I rubbed my eyes, took a closer look, and confirmed, no, actually, Romeo was eating Juliet. <laughs> poor, poor Juliet. If any of you have fish tanks at home and one of your precious fish die, where are you likely to find it? Floating. Floating on top. If you don't believe me, you can do an experiment. You just need one drop of cyanide, but no, you don't want to... You don't want to do that. But is it true that when we're watching high-definition documentaries and the camera comes down on the ocean bottom, do we see thousands of sea creatures lying there fully intact, waiting to be slowly buried over millions of years? No. So you see, if I wanted to make a, a fossil of my daughter's remaining goldfish, what I had to do is I had to get a shovel of concrete, sneak into a room in the middle of the night, and then throw it in there really quick. No, I didn't do that. I wouldn't. That would be me. But do we have any evidence that supports this idea that the only way we can get a fossil is through a rapid catastrophic event, such as a worldwide flood, like the Bible tells us about? Well, take a look at this. Here's a fish that was buried so quickly it was caught right in the middle of having lunch. How about this? Here's an ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. Now, I've heard stories of long labors, but really millions of years? <laughs> How about this? Here's a hat that was buried for only 20 years. You might say it evolved from a soft hat into a hard hat. Or, in this case, here's a bag of flour after only decades turned to stone. Or in this instance, this teddy bear was turned to stone in only three to five months. 
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see the evidence? It does not take millions of years of evolutionary time. The Bible's account explains things more accurately. Now, I'd like to just take a little break right now and just say that those, those examples of evidence and facts that I just shared with you that point to the historical account of the Bible, were they easy to understand? Was I talking over anybody's head, right? But more importantly, can you picture yourself getting equipped with information like this that's easy to, to, uh, to explain, that might start changing the minds of people that have been told all their life that evolution is a fact? So that they could see that the Bible is true, so that perhaps the Holy Spirit of God could bring them into the kingdom of heaven. All right, now, I already know that there's a lot of people that are that I keep mentioning the millions of years of time, you know, in some cases billions, and, you know, they're thinking, you know, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, here we are in church, we, we talk about the Bible, and we should just stick with important doctrines in the Bible. But do you think if we were to somehow harmonize millions of years with the Bible, do you think it might impact some important doctrines? Well, let's take a look at that. As you're probably aware, in both the Old and the New Testament, there are a lot of genealogies. Have you seen those? You know? And in the, in, the, in the first part of the Old Testament, they have what's called chrono genealogies, where so-and-so was so old when his son was born, and he was so old when his son was born, he was so old when his son was born, and you can actually add up each generation, and you'll get a reliable time span from Adam all the way up to Abraham. Would you understand what I'm talking about so yes. far? And then after that, God talks about time all the time. How many years passed? Like, you know, this king ruled for this many years, followed by this king for this many years, followed by this king for this many years. And you can actually use the Bible and do calculations, and you'll get a reliable time span from Adam all the way up to Jesus. So if you think millions of years are scientifically... Uh, 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 something that you have to do and you want to fit them into the Bible, can you squeeze those millions of years between Adam and Jesus logically? No, of course not. So you know what a lot of people do. In fact, most people in the church say that each day in Genesis represents millions or billions of years. Have you guys heard that idea? But I want to let you know that if you take that opinion, you've got a huge doctrinal problem and I'm holding it in my hand right here. Because you see, if those millions of years that are shown in the sedimentary layers, which have dead things in them, are before Adam, you have death before the fall, death before the curse. Now, does this sound like we might be touching on an important doctrine? Yes. Let's take a look at this even a little further. You see, in the last verse of Genesis 1, God said that his creation wasn't just good, but this time it was what? Very good. So what does a very good world look like? Well, check this out. Just a couple of verses earlier, God said, I give you plants for food. So that means that in that original paradise, that original creation where there was no death of animals, that means there was also no barbecue. But notice in the next verse, he gives the animals the same command. He said, I give you plants for food. So if we're taking the Bible as it's plainly written here, both man and animal were what? Vegetarian. Vegetarian, which comes from an ancient Hebrew term that means bad hunter. <laughs> but in case you're feeling guilty because you had some bacon in your breakfast today, I want to let you know later on God said, just as I gave you green plants for food, I now give you 
everything for food, which some people use as biblical justification to eat these things. <laughs> but think about this, a very good world. There was no sin. We were created to live in harmony with our creator. There's no death, no disease, no sorrow, no pain. But you guys all know we don't live in a world like that anymore, do we? You see, because God commanded Adam, he said that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. Die. This is when death came into the world. And since we worship a loving God, but he's also, he's merciful, but he's also just. And you should be thankful that he's just. There is a penalty for disobedience, which is death. And the Bible tells us that every descendant of Adam inherited that sin nature, and along with it, the penalty of death, which we experience. And it's kind of a, kind of a bad Bad thing to happen, huh? Except God sent a rescue mission. He sent his own son, who was God in the flesh, who knew no sin, the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve. So that, at the end of the Bible, it tells us there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You guys read about that? You see there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. Is anybody else looking forward to that? Yes. The Bible starts with a perfect paradise that is redeemed and ends with one. And if we say that those layers are millions of years before Adam, and we have death before the fall, we're actually turning the gospel upside down. There cannot be any death before sin. If you don't think this subject is important, maybe you could take the word of an of a atheist. This atheist in a debate, with a, a debate with a Christian said the following. He said, the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. He said, now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. This atheist went on to say, if there never was an Adam and Eve, then there never was an original sin. And if there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. And if there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior. And he finished by saying, I submit, that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. And he's right. Evolution and its millions of years are not compatible at all with Scripture. And I, I've had people say, oh, man, don't cause division, you know? Don't cause division about anything like that. I mean, after all, we do worship a big and powerful God, and, and God could have created in any way He wanted, and I'll agree with you, He could have, but don't you think it's about time that we allow God to tell us how He created through His inerrant Word? And speaking of causing a huge division in the church, this guy had something to say about this subject. He said, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever's in them in six days, if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to, bear, you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written, but... Since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantonly to turn his word 
in the direction you wish to go. There are a lot of questions that people have, a lot of challenges that people throw at the Bible. And we need to be equipped with those an answers. You remember those statistics. You know, that the, the Barnett Institute has actually done surveys where they've shown that the number one claimed intellectual excuse for people leaving the faith is evolution and these questions. So I hope you can see why we need to have a defense for your faith. So I hope you don't mind me being very practical right now. Huh? I, I mean, how many people here know that there's a battle going on for the souls of men waging right now? And, and if that's true, should we be equipped with tools and ammunition in order to help them if indeed this is the number one barrier? I hope you can see, because we don't want to go into battle unarmed. Um, and, and you guys might have noticed we have some resources out in the library. We didn't bring those because that's not what uh, financially fuels our ministry. It's the donors that, that, that regularly give to us. But nonetheless, I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I remember 10% of sermons for 10 minutes and then pff, it's gone, right? And I'm sure that's not true with Pastor Corey, but if you listen to a message a second or a third time, do you get the information? Do you, do, do you get it? Uh, put into your brain a little bit better. That's preparation and equipping. That's what books and information are about. So, like I said, I hope you don't mind being very practical, but I do want to point out one particular resource where we get more testimonies of people coming to know Christ more than any other one. Not because you give them the resource, but because you get equipped with it. And that specifically is uh, Creation Magazine. Now, this has been around for well over 40 years. I think we're just about at about 45 years now. Um, it's 56 pages long, comes out quarterly. There's no advertising, and I don't know if you guys get magazines at home, but if you pulled out all the advertising, would you have 56 pages left? <laughs> and yet what's left in here isn't just a good recipe for butternut squash. This is, this is information that you can use to equip yourself. It will build your faith. It will help you with your children and grandchildren to better establish and understand that the Bible is true. And maybe most importantly, it'll give you information that you can use for the people in your neighborhoods or in your workplace or in your schools that God's put into your life who have never heard the other side of the story. You can use some of the things we've talked about today as well as the many things you can learn from the magazine that will help change lives. So if you do subscribe today, I usually tell you, you get to take the, the current issue home, but the first and second service sold out all the magazines I have. So what I will do is I've already got it approved that if you do subscribe, we will mail you your magazine and your, your free gifts. It might take a couple weeks, but we'll get them to you. So we just put a little mark on there and we'll get those to you. So you get the, the current issue. Every month you get a newsletter with other articles that will lift you up and help give you evidence. Every issue, you'll get the digital version on up to five devices that you can send a link, an email link to five people in your family. They can put it on their tablet, their smartphone, their laptop, so everybody in your family can have a copy of the magazine. If you do a two-year subscription, you get two DVDs. This one here about uh, Darwin, an award-winning documentary that traces his, uh, his route back to the Galapagos, and dares ask the question, if Darwin were alive today, and knew all the evidence, would he come to the same conclusion? 
also that documentary I already mentioned where you can see students here in the United States who left the faith, what their challenges were, and get answers to their challenges. So in a moment, as these forms go around, obviously we would need your name and address on them. So uh, go ahead and put those down. Tear off that form and come back there. And like I said, even for that, we will mail you the information. So if you guys could distribute those right now, I would appreciate it. And while those are going around, I'm gonna give you two examples of information you could use uh, even later on this afternoon, stuff from Creation Magazine. Now, how many people here heard the idea that carbon dating proves millions and billions of years? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm gonna do a question and answer time. If you have questions about that, I can go into further detail. But let me just give you one example. And that is that a, a sample was taken from a volcanic lava dome, taken to a potassium argon dating lab, and they got an age of 350,000 years. Then they extracted a mineral from the same sample, and this time it was much higher, 900,000. And yet another mineral was extracted, sent to the same lab, and this time it was up to 2.8 million years. Now it was the same sample sent to the same potassium argon dating lab using the same mass spectrometer, the same scientists running the equipment, but they got all these different dates. So which one do you guys think is right? You are correct. This is the actual date of that sample, and the reason we know that is because it came from the Mount St. Helens lava dome, and we knew exactly when this rock was formed. So if we get uh, radioisotope dates of rocks when we know the age that are completely wrong, and this happens all the time, by the way, then that's, does that bring into question the assumptions that scientists use when they date rocks when they don't know the age? I would say yes. And then this last one is an amazing, mind-blowing thing. That's at Dr. Mary Schweitzer, a number of years ago at the time at Montana State University, made a discovery that she said was beyond belief, and that is that within dinosaur bones, she found red blood cells. They went extinct 65 million years ago. And listen to how she responded. I got goosebumps. It was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone. But of course, I couldn't believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones, after all, they are 65 million years old. I know that to be a fact. How could blood cells survive that long? And it got more exciting because years later, they dissolved the bony matrix. What they found was transparent blood vessels with liquid contents, as well as flexible and resilient tissue that could be stretched. That is dinosaur tissue. Does it look over 65 million years old to you? And here's how she responded to that subsequent discovery. She said, it was totally shocking. I didn't what? Believe, Believe it until we'd done it. 17 times. Now, do you remember when we talked about operational science that's done in the laboratory, in the present, right before our eyes? But she said, she couldn't believe it. And you know what? I don't blame her. Because sometimes our faith in what we believe is really strong and it's hard to let go. However, I would like to give you a different interpretation of this evidence on the backs of my PhD colleagues. Would that be okay? A different interpretation? The dinosaur bones are not 65 million years old. Tomorrow, by the way, I'm going to be doing a talk on dinosaurs. I don't know if it's for a homeschool family, but I have a feeling that if some adults came and sat in the back, you'd be welcome. I just invited you without any authority, so hopefully, <laughs> so it'll be my fault. 
But anyhow, this presentation is, is, has uh, given you some, some things to think about and you would like to, maybe you know of another church anywhere in the world. Uh, I do have some pastor packs. I would love to be able to hand out to you if you can get them to a pastor. You can find your question, the answers to your questions where, everybody? All right. Well, besides the magazine, if you were going to do anything else, I would do uh, the starter pack. The starter pack includes three resources, <coughs> such as the answers book, which answers the 60 most asked questions, such as plate tectonics, carbon dating, Noah's Ark, the Ice Age, Ape Men, and my favorite question, where did Cain get his wife when he wasn't able? Also in the starter pack, you have the Refuting Evolution book. This is the biggest selling creation book of all time, answering the National Academy of Sciences directive to public school teachers on how to uh, teach evolution. Evolution's Achilles heels, uh, which also might be sold out um, because those first two services are just, um, and we will mail it to you for free, all we just need to do. But this is, I think, the best documentary by far. There's no doubt we made 15 PhD scientists demolish evolution in only uh, just a little over an hour. It's great. And Genesis Academy, if somebody wants to buy a copy of this for the church so that you guys could have like a Sunday school or a, uh, a small group lesson, that'd be great. But 20 years ago, resources like this didn't even exist. And I think right now is an exciting time to be a Christian. But I have an important question I want to end with today, and that is, are you willing to equip and train yourself with the answers to the tough questions that people have challenging the Bible so that perhaps you could be the one that dives in and rescues the perishing while others just stand by and watch so that you can fulfill this command to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right? Thank you.